22 and at verse 34, we continue our look in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 22, 34. Let's read together that text. But when the Pharisees, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yes, uh, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I was thinking recently back on watching uh, um, the movie Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi was the father of modern India. And uh, uh, I was uh, thinking about the at the beginning of the movie as he was walking along with a Christian friend of his, uh, a Christian pastor, and he was Gandhi was remarking that some of the simplest statements that... Um, that uh, we have are some of the most powerful. That the, the, that the most powerful statements that we uh, enjoy and affect us are, uh, are oftentimes the shortest. And that is definitely true when it comes to this passage. And in fact, in the movie itself, uh, this is the, the verse that Gandhi quoted. And Gandhi uh, drew upon the teachings of Jesus as he uh, help build modern India in, in terms of uh, having this view of uh, peaceful resistance toward the government. And uh, if you get a chance to watch the movie, I commend it to you. It's long, but it's worth uh, the investment. But he drew attention to these passages and passages which are indeed very powerful. Uh, they're powerful in the sense not only in terms of the content, but the economy of, of words that are used to sum up the whole of the Old Testament. <laughs> Jesus says on, in verse 40, on these two commandments depend, or really the word there is hang, all the other commandments. So if you, if you can think of all the commandments like a coat rack, uh, th these, these commandments really make up the coat rack, and on the coat rack are all these hinges, some 613 little hooks on this huge coat rack. And on, all, on this huge coat rack hang all the laws of the Old Testament. But the coat rack itself is made up of these two commandments. And really what Jesus is doing is distilling the law of God down to these two commandments. The Ten Commandments themselves is a kind of a distillation, a, a kind of a, a, a boiling down of other laws. They are a summary so that when we look at the Ten Commandments, say, for example, you shall not steal, it's a summary statement of what the whole Bible says about what it means to steal. Steal from other people. Steal from God. Or what it means to rob our neighbor. And, and all. So the Bible as a whole unpacks the, the, the short statement, you shall not steal. 
So in that statement, there's a whole world of, of exposition that you can go into what it means not to steal. But the commandments really boil that down into uh, ten short statements. But Jesus takes those ten statements and, and reduces them even further. Because the Ten Commandments were, uh, in, in uh, many ways, uh, broken into two. Uh, there were the first four commandments, which we typically think of being directly having a bearing upon God himself. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images of God. You shall not misuse the name of God or take the name of God in vain. Uh, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So those four commandments have a direct bearing upon God Himself. And then the other six, although there is overlap in the two, yet the other six have more of a direct bearing upon our relationship to other people. Honoring your father and mother. Not murdering, not stealing, not lying, not coveting, and so on. Uh, they have the idea of how we deal with one another. And so Jesus takes those four laws over here and those six laws over here and reduces them down even further to these statements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And... He says, this is the great and first commandment. Everything, in other words, flows out of that. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's quite a statement. The rabbis, or it says here the lawyers, and uh, they were uh, a group of people who devoted their lives to thinking about the law. Oftentimes, uh, hair-splitting uh, over, over certain laws. What was right to do on the Sabbath? Well, you couldn't do work on the Sabbath. So, well, you can't drag your chair across the floor because there's dirt on the floor. And that would create a furrow on the floor of dirt, and that would be plowing, and therefore you shouldn't drag your chair across the floor. It, it was that kind of approach to the law that caused them to, as Jesus says, major in the minors and forget the weightier matters of the law, the ideas of love and mercy. They were too busy thinking about these sorts of things. And they forgot the spirit of the law. That's true. You miss the forest for the trees, as, as we often say. And that's exactly what they were doing. And so Jesus himself spoke uh, in chapter 23 uh, about that very thing. He himself talks about some laws being weightier than others. In chapter 23, in verse 23, uh, he says, um, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In other words, they were so bound to tithing their leaves, one for the Lord, nine for me, one for the Lord, nine for me. And then they would turn to their neighbor and hate them and despise them and, 
And they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law. It became a, a, a gross distortion of what God had originally intended for his people. And you can imagine why Jesus reserves some of his strong, strongest language for the teachers of the law. And that's what we'll see in a couple of weeks in chapter 13 where he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. Jesus takes very seriously this whole idea of uh, distorting who God is uh, before the watching world. Because Israel were to be his people. So Jesus responds. He's, they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? Now at one level, this is not a bad question. The problem is, is when they use it to test Jesus. They want to trip him up. They want to accuse him of something. But in, in another sense, you could ask this question from an innocent point of view as well. There were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 248 of them were positive. 365 of them were negative. So you could you could innocently ask such a question. What is the greatest of all those commandments? But of course, they were doing it out of a sense of malice toward Jesus and a, a desire to trip him up. And so Jesus answers. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus replies and he says that at the heart of God's law is love. That's true of the laws, any laws. You'd be hard pressed to find any laws in this country that aren't there to help people or to restrain evil of some kind. Even when you're driving through Hampton or if you've come through Bonshaw, you've had to slow down. I think it's 70, you know, it's 80 in Bonshaw and now it's 70 in Hampton. But why do they put those laws there? It reflects something of the culture in which we live. That there is an element where we seek the welfare and the good of our neighbor. So the, the, the signs aren't put there, slow down to 70, to make our lives difficult. We're seeking, there, there's some good intention behind it. There's some benevolence behind it. There's some good intention to protect people. And so you have food laws to keep people from getting sick. You have child protection laws to keep children safe. You have road laws to keep people safe on the highway. There, any law, it has this idea of uh, a good intention behind it. And so it's reflecting the heart of love for neighbor. It would be terrible to live in a country with no laws. That would say a lot about that country, wouldn't it? Oh, we're free here. Uh, we the People can just live the way that... You wouldn't want that. You would think it would be a you, kind of a utopia. Oh, this is kind of cool. No laws. How great. For the first five minutes. Until your laws don't equal up with someone else's laws, or your desires don't equal up with someone else's desires, and then you've got complete anarchy, and everybody's dead within an hour. And so, the laws are good. Laws are a reflection of love and kindness. 
And, uh, and uh, this, this is exactly true when it comes to the law of God. We love God's law because we see that it's an expression of the moral character of God. The Bible itself says that God is love. What a statement that is. And that if God is love, then we can expect that everything that flows out of this God is done in love. Even His anger. Yes, even His anger is an expression of love. Just as that is very true in parenting. You parents know what I'm talking about. That anger is an expression that Godly anger, good anger, is an expression of love for your child. I'm angry with you because I told you not to play on the highway. If you play on the highway, you're going to get hurt. You might die if you continue to play on the Why are you getting angry? Because it's as out, of, out of love. And it's the same with God. When God's wrath is expressed, it's not against His moral character of, of, of love but it flows out of that. It flows out of an expression of who He is. So if God is love, then it's natural that love should be at the very heart of His kingdom and at the very heart of our relationship to who He is and at the, at the heart of uh, our relationship with one another. And so God says, Jesus says here, quoting the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Mark, he, he says, and with all your strength. In other words, it's a complete engagement in loving God. Now, if we, if we think about the reason for that and how we're going to do that, I mean, you may have been singing as we were singing Psalm 119, say, I love to keep your commands. I love your commands. And you may have been reading that line and thinking, hmm, I'm not, I'm not all into singing about God's commands. I'm into singing about Jesus dying for me, but keeping God's commands is a different matter. But if we think back, and we, we say, well, how, do, how does that become a reality in my life? Is that just for the Old Testament saint? Or is that something that I can say? And how do I say that kind of thing? How do I honestly sing that kind of sentiment? Well, let's go back. And I invite you to turn back with me so you can see it for yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the passage we read, page 151. From which Jesus quotes the first part of this uh, saying, this text, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. It's interesting the way he says, the Lord our God, the Lord. Three, three designations for God. Many people have seen in that confession uh, uh, an early uh, indication of the Trinity, the triune God. The Lord our God, the Lord, is one. He is one. He is one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
And again, we look at that and we say, how can God demand our all? When I look at myself and I say, I'm so fallible, I, 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 I fail Him in so many ways. When I go to do good, evil is present with me. There's such a streak of selfishness there. Streak of pride. Self-protection and all the rest of it. And it was the same for the ancient Israelite. How were they going to do it? They need to remember from where they have come. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? What's the meaning of this loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Then you shall say to your son, and this is the gospel. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And you say, well, I was never in Egypt. And I say, yes, we are all by nature born in Egypt. <laughs> that is why when, as I said ad nauseum, when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared to him and they spoke to Jesus about the, this is the word, the exodus that he would perform in Jerusalem. Friends, that is an interpretive key that when you turn it, the whole of the Old Testament just, boom, opens up for you. It just unlocks a treasure trove of understanding. You're then able to say, the Exodus was all about the cross. That what I see in the Exodus, I can apply now to myself as what Jesus did on the cross. He is the greater Moses who takes me out of the dominion of darkness and brings me into the kingdom of the Son of His love, a land flowing with milk and honey. And out of that, I realize that now I am not my own, but I have been bought with the blood of the Son of God. I am not my own. That's what Paul says. He doesn't say, you know, part of the time you belong to God and part of the time you just are off and doing your own thing. You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. And the price is Jesus' blood. The price of His life. The price is the Son of God. He gave His all, all, all for us. Because we were dead in trespasses and sins. We are on the road to hell by nature. We are, as the Bible clearly points out, followers of the prince of the power of the air. Now that's a pretty bad indictment of the human condition. But Jesus has come to break that uh, hold that sin and Satan has over us. And He does that on the cross. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. He has come to defeat the devil, to pay for our sins, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and eternal life. 
All within the span of those few short hours that he spent on the cross. That's why Luke goes to pains to say that they spoke to Jesus of the exodus that he would perform, not in Egypt, but in Jerusalem. And so we go back to those alls, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, everything. Why? Because Jesus was spent in every possible way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, every way He was spent for you and I. Crucified in shame, nakedness on the cross, Crucified publicly, having been rejected by all his friends, all his followers. His own Father looking down on him and making him to be sin for us. Laying upon him our debts. And so we begin to rethink these words all, all, all. We begin to rethink our minds, our strength, our soul in the light of a sacrifice which we will never begin to know the magnitude of. And we go back, and this is where we begin. We begin with the Gospel. We begin with the Good News. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. Not with You do this, and I will love you. But this is how I have loved you. I have brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. Now, you will have no other gods before me. You will not make any images of me. You will will remember my day. You will not take my name in vain. You will honor your father and mother. You will not steal. You will not murder. You will not lie. You will not covet. Because I, the Lord your God, am a great God. I will provide for you in every possible way. And he has answered that in the greater exodus. See, if we, if we go back to the Ten Commandments and we substitute those words, I am the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And we substitute the New Testament uh, uh, ideas there of what Jesus did on the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, Jesus says, if you are my friends, if you really know me, you will keep my commandments. And my commandment is this, that you love one another as I have loved you. Holy and completely. And we apply those alls to Jesus. He loved us all, all. And you roll those words over your mind, and you can't. You no superlatives in this world, no exclamatory language can compete with those words of John. For God, the greatest being, so loved, the greatest motivation, gave His only Son, the greatest gift, that whosoever around the world, man, woman, or child, educated and uneducated the greatest number of people, whosoever, should believe the simplest act, should receive 
eternal life. The greatest inheritance. All, all, all. It's just, you can, no angel could have ever imagined such a thing. And yet, it rolls over our tongues with such ease nowadays. This is how we, we uh, 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 now come back to these words of Jesus. How we uh, begin to reckon with how, Lord, can I love You in this way? How can I love You with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and my neighbor as myself? You can't in yourself. Jesus comes to the teacher of the law, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he says to him, you must be born again or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot embrace the kingdom of God because it's based upon the love of God. And you need a new heart to know that. You must be born again. And it's being born again. It's having your eyes open that you're now able to see something that was foolish before. Do you mean a a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago is responsible for my salvation and my response to him in 2021 is how I enter the kingdom of heaven? That's foolishness. But then the the Spirit of God opens our eyes and we see it laid out in the Word of God so perfectly and beautifully and boldly. We say it is true. Why? Because God has opened your eyes. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Open my eyes, O Lord, that I might see, that I might behold wondrous things from Your Word. Open my eyes. That ought to be our prayer. And this is how we go back to it. Loving God with all our heart. Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. That's one of the ways in which we love God. And it presents itself to us every day in a hundred different situations. How can I love God today? You pray that in the morning. Say, Lord, help me to love You today. Help me to show my, my love for You. God says, okay, get in the car. We'll go to work. You're getting laid off. Or there's a guy at work, your boss has really given it to you. you, you uh, your wages were docked. You get home, trouble at home. You're having trouble with your neighbor. Whatever it is. And instead of yielding to fear, instead of yielding to anxiety and projecting the worst into the future, you choose at that moment to trust in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding. You begin to praise Him. Lord, You're the God that brought Your people out of Egypt. You're the God that created the world. You spoke. And it was so. You uttered Your voice and it stood still. You turned water into wine. You raised the dead. You forgive sin. Lord, You're not going to let me sink now. In fact, Lord, You have determined in Your Word that any adverse circumstances are now going to be for my good. I'm going to be blessed through this affliction in some way that I can't see now. And you start to praise God. You start to thank Him. 
What are you doing? You're loving God with all your heart. You're choosing not to respond to the people closest to you, and it's oftentimes the people that love you the most and know you the best, rather than respond with bitterness and a short temper, you realize God owns my response right now. The old me would have lashed out, but because God owns my life now, He owns, He now sets the terms as to how I'm to respond to the people closest to me. Not with hate, not with impatience, not with bitterness, but exactly the way God deals with me. Long-suffering, patiently, lovingly, kindly, giving Himself, sacrificing Himself. That's why Paul makes no bones of taking and applying the work of the cross to the relationship between husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He owns our responses now. We trust in the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul. We apply our, the very innermost part of our being to serving God. And with the mind. I love again the way Paul in Romans 12, at the fir- in the first verse, makes the connection between the two. Look at what it says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by what? The mercies of God. The mercies of God. He's just explained the Gospel in the last 11 chapters. And now he says, in light of the Gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your bodies. There's your strength. There's your heart. There's your mind. There's everything about you. Then he goes on to talk about the mind specifically. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. You're worshiping God. You're you're seeking God with your mind. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean taking leave of your mind. It doesn't mean suppressing knowledge. It means being able now to open, be open to everything. Be open to scientific inquiry. To be open to the, the world around you. To be open to the fact that this is God's world. To be, to be able to apply our minds to God's Word. To have our be allowing our minds to be changed, allowing God's word to challenge the attitudes and the presuppositions that we've carried for years that might be wrong, and God is putting His finger on them and says, "Your mind has to change here. Is it in marriage? Is it in getting along with your neighbor? Is it what you're doing with your money? Is it how you're wasting your time on television or Netflix or whatever it is?" And we allow God, Lord, my mind is dark by nature. I I need the light of Your Word. The entrance of Your Word, Lord, gives light. Open my mind, Lord. Open my mind. Redeem my mind. And in doing so, we love God in that way. God is saying, You're loving me by letting me change Your mind. 
It's just like a husband and wife will, will love one another by making themselves vulnerable to the other, letting them speak into one another's lives and to change anything that needs to be changed. Not to simply make you into me or to make my life easier so you will do what I want, but for your good and for your blessing. That's, the, that's where it's coming from. It must always come from there. It must always come from a place of love. And it flows on then. We love, we love God because He first loved us. That's the order. And that's how we then apply that to loving our neighbor as ourselves. I always go back, and I will again, to 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul is talking about gathering together a collection because the saints in Jerusalem were hard hit. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, I want to tell you about a group of people called the Macedonians who were as dirt poor as you could imagine. But do you know what they did? They begged us to take what little money they had to the believers in Jerusalem so that they could be helped. Why would they love their neighbor so radically when they had hardly any money themselves? Listen to what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. You hear that? That has been given to the churches of Macedonia. Not just one church, not a little fellowship, but a whole bunch of churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and by their own means of their own free will, begging us to earnestly uh, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. How do you love your neighbor? Not only your neighbor here on PEI, but your neighbor in South America, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, all over the world. And your, your neighbor, which also takes in your enemy, as Jesus showed us so clearly in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan who looked after this Jewish man who was left for dead on the side of the road when the, the, the priest and the Levite walked away. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. But a Samaritan who was the and Samaritans and Jews were enemies of one another. And he went and he helped him and he, he put him on his donkey and he took him to the inn and he paid for his stay there. And Jesus said, who was the neighbor to the man left on the side of the road? Well, of course it was the Samaritan. Our neighbor, we don't get to choose who our neighbors are in that sense. Our neighbors are those near from us, far from us, those we love and those we don't get along with. 
And so Jesus could say, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You can't say the first thing. Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you can't do the, the second. And you can do neither without the Gospel. You can do neither without Christ. And when you fail in doing those things, when you fail and you fall short, as we all do, the best of Christians will fall short. We will not give our all, all, all. But do you know that even there, there's good news? That because Jesus gave His all, 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 He now imputes that life to us. He gives us that life. He says, where you fall short, I succeeded. And when you believe on Me, you are clothed in My righteousness. So that God, when He looks at you, sees the righteousness of His own Son. That's what Paul means in so many places when he says now the righteousness of God has been made known which the law and the prophets testify to. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith, which is given to us as a gift. He made Him in 2 Corinthians 5. He made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the Gospel, friends. That's why we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In other words, you can't lose. You can't lose when you come to Jesus. Even when you fall flat on your face and you look and you say, I, Lord, I, I struggle with these things. I'm a coward. I'm greedy oftentimes. I'm this, I'm that. Lord, help me. And the Gospel answers. Jesus kept it. Ultimately, this is our hope. When we couldn't do it, Jesus did it for us. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we say, oh well, if He did it for us, why do I need to do it? Not at all. Anyone who concludes that is not a believer. We saw that back with the garments a few weeks ago. The person who concludes that has not known the love of God in their heart. But they say, because Jesus did that for me, Lord, I give my all. My heart, I give to You, Lord. My body, I give to You. My mind, I give to You. My strength, my soul, Lord, I give to You. It's not a drawing back from God. It's an engaging. It's a throwing yourself in. The more you know of the Gospel, the more you want to throw yourself into serving God, loving God, making Him known. Is that the way it is with you today? Notwithstanding your struggles, as I've just outlined, notwithstanding the fact that we fall short in many things, but yet... There's this insatiable appetite where you keep coming back again and again. You're drawn by the love of God. You know that your only hope is in the Gospel. And it's there that you find your ultimate strength. And so we, we look 
at passages like this, and sometimes they terrify the heart out of us. Say, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? But where we start has a lot to do with where we end up. And we start in a place of victory. We start in a place of complete salvation. We start where Jesus says, it is finished, the bill is paid, you are mine, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You are complete in me. And now, let's move forward. You can't lose. You're more than conquerors. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Shall nakedness, peril, sword? And he goes on. Angels, principalities, powers. Things present, things to come. Oh, he just drags it all in there. Everything but the kitchen sink. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the child of God then goes back and in that says, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Let us pray.